Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I am the Eggman. They are the Eggmen. I am the Walrus. Goo 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 jube. I'm still Kev. <laughs> still not playing. That's fine, but you keep saying I'm still Kev. One day he's like, I, I'm David. <laughs> I'm still DRE. <laughs> Dear. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to Album Clash. Second part in our latest Brit Cop. Brit Cock. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> Today we review the best works of legendary porn star Ben Dover. <laughs> Kev, what album are we going through today and why? <laughs> so today we are going through uh, Suede's uh, third album, uh, Coming Up. The reason for it is that there are a myriad of links between our previous week's clash, Elastica and Suede. The main, the main one that Justin Frieshman, lead singer, was in Suede, as was the the drummer, uh, Justin uh, Webb. No, Welsh, Welsh. Justin Webb's the newsreader, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yes. <laughs> On Radio Four. So uh, Brett Anderson used to have a infronglement with hey. uh, <laughs> with uh, Justin Frieshman. Um, I'm, you can definitely say that both bands were certainly at the nexus of the Britpop universe. Yes, indeed, they were. But before we go into Coming Up by Suede, I believe it's my pick for Video Killed the Radio Star. And what a pick it was. Oh, yeah. So to celebrate Britpop season, I wanted to go through what, in my opinion, is one of the best videos of that era, and that is the video to Tax Loss by Manson. So what do you recall of this video, Kev, from the time? I remember this video coming out and and being absolutely amazed by it. The the stunt that they pull, it's very um, akin to the video that Michael Moore did um, with Rage Against the Machine for the Sleep Now in the Fire video. Yes. And certainly has that kind of performance art element to it. Exactly. So I have described it as one of the first examples of guerrilla marketing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you haven't seen the video, so it's directed by Roman Coppola, who we've spoken about numerous wow. times on this show. It, basically, it was five fellas rocking up at Liverpool Street Station in London at half past eight, well, 8.26am on the 17th of April, 1997, and chucking £25,000 worth of £5 notes, each with a sticker saying tax loss on it, onto the main concourse. And then a literal cash grab ensues. So it was filmed with secret cameras. The men were then ejected from the station and threatened with arrest for trespass if they attempted a similar stunt in the future. I mean, why would they, though? <laughs> Don't come and throw 25 grand on the floor tomorrow. We won't bother. It's all right. <laughs> I mean, this is very late 90s. Yes. Rail track employees <laughs> are filmed. So basically people who worked for the, the station of films going around and picking those notes up and uh, stuff yep. in their pockets. And yeah, it is, it is a, like, a, as you said, it's a free for all. It's brilliant. And interspersed with, well, bookending the video rather, are news clippings and, and, and footage from 
radio news reports and television news reports that that picked up on it. So, um, and the very last one is basically saying that uh, I think again it might be John Humphreys, you know, saying that uh, that rail track hadn't had a single complaint about the incident. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a really, really good video. I like Tax Loss a lot as a song. It's my favourite Manson song, actually. I think it's a really good track. And, um, yeah, a really good sort of underground guerrilla video. Great stuff. Yeah, it's it's really good. I do strongly urge um, those who haven't seen it or if you haven't seen it for a while to check it out. Because, as Tim says, the song is great as well. Yeah, it is. Okay, shall we move on to today's order of business? Indeed we shall. So it's as we said, it's me to lead us through uh, Suede's third album coming up, which was uh, released on Nude Records, 2nd of September, 96. And it's the first album they'd recorded since the departure of Bernard Butler and the first recorded with Richard Oakes, who was 17 when he first joined the band in 94. So yes, there's a lot of background to Bernard Butler's departure from the band. Are you intending to go through it? Because I think it's worth discussing what led Bernard Butler to to leave the band and Richard Oakes to join the band. I mean, what you can certainly say is the Dogman Star, the previous album, had performed poorly commercially. It was critically poorly received. It didn't do well commercially. It coincided with the rise of Oasis, Blur and Pulp and Suede had kind of slipped into the background of the incipient Britpop movement. And obviously there was quite the divide between Butler wanting as much time as possible for his great guitar work. You can't, like, Bernard Butler is an immense guitarist and Brett Anderson's need to be a frontman. And that kind of creative tension led to Butler really leaving. Yeah, exactly. So Brett Anderson... Later, after the release of, well, several years after the release of Dogman Star, said that the album had basically been written by Post, that the relationship between him and Bernard Butler had broken down to such an extent that they wouldn't spend time in the studio together. Bernard Butler has said that he was becoming increasingly disillusioned with the musical direction of the band and his frustrations about not being able to exert his musical influence to the extent that he'd like to have done. So he said, I was desperate. I had an idea in my head, and unfortunately at that age, I didn't have the social or diplomatic skills to deliver what I needed to do. As I say, we are going we are going back, but Bernard Butler had left by the time Dog Man Star had been released. And I want to come back even further than that, because I've got some fun facts to talk about Suede and their formation. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> really sorry. Okay, so the original lineup the classic lineup of Suede. So when their first album was released. So we talked about Justine Frischman being a, a founding member. So Brett Anderson being the front man, obviously. Bassist Matt Osman, who was one of the founding members. Matt Osman, who is brother of Richard Osman from Pointless. That was fun fact number one. Thank <laughs> you very much. Bernard Butler, he joined after he'd answered an ad in the NME. And, okay, here's fun fact number two. Suede's main drummer, Simon Gilbert, he also joined after answering an ad uh, in the NME, but not before they had a more renowned drummer answer that ad and join the band temporarily. Kevin, who was that? 
Oh, no, that's not the fun fact that I have related to that. Oh, okay. So before Simon Gilbert joined, temporarily, Suede's drummer was Mike Joyce, drummer with the Smiths. So from my fun fact about uh, Simon Gilbert is that he was encouraged to, because there was, there was an advert in the University of London um, where one Ricky Gervais um, was working in the entertainment uh, department in the college and persuaded Simon Gilbert to, um, to go perform. So that is fun fact number three. Ricky Gervais <laughs> at the time was also Suede's co-manager. Is that right? I didn't, I yes, didn't pick is. that bit up. Okay. <laughs> Final fun fact, and this is a callback to something I said last week. The term Britpop was coined about Suede. Indeed. In, a, in, a, in an article, well, a cover article for Select Magazine, written by someone that Kevin and I have spoken about before and are very fond of, Stuart McConey. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's you'll be familiar with it, surely. It's the famous Yanks Go Home issue of, of Select Magazine which features Brett Anderson with a typical shirt open, superimposed uh, in front of a a union flag. And in a 2018 documentary about suede for Sky Arts, Stuart McConey of that article and of the term Britpop said, when I invented that phrase and wrote that magazine article, I did not mean for Britpop to be what it later became. It was a very particular English sensibility. It's not big city music. It was Revenge of the Suburbs, that literate art rock element of Britpop, which is what I was interested in. They all had that very particular English outsider suburban aesthetic. Brett Anderson, in the same documentary, said he's he's no more a fan of the term than, than Stuart McConey. He said, I felt partly responsible for it, like giving birth to some awful child. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that signifies what the term came to represent, along with Cool Britannia. You know, it Yeah, it trawls up memories of Noel Gallagher at a champagne reception at number 10, shaking hands with Tony Blair, with Alistair Campbell, coordinating things in the background. It's quite unedifying, but anyway. Yeah, um, but there are lots of, you know, we've kind of covered this before in terms of the, the Britpop stuff. We have, and I'm sorry, I completely interrupted your flow as to the background of coming up. So, yeah, Bernard Butler left, and Richard Oakes was 17 when he joined. Back over to you, Kev. Um, it's also the first album with Neil Codling on the keyboards, which I think is really important, particularly for the sound of this album. And Brett Anderson said he wanted this album to be the complete opposite of Dogman Star which, as we said, hadn't performed well. So he said, I think the album will... So previously, I think the album will be quite simple, actually. I'd like to write a straightforward pop album, just 10 hits. And the album itself was produced by their long-term collaborator, Ed Buller, who welcomed this plan's change in direction. And basically, they came up with a manifesto for what they wanted the album to be. So the songs were to be less complex, more immediate, with heavier drum sounds, fewer guitar solos, which obviously with without Bernard, that was going to be easier to, to achieve, and employ strings on fewer songs. So they wanted to they wanted it to be poppier, but stripped back a bit more. The band themselves uh, had listened to T-Rex's The Slider and had that as the blueprint 
So Buller said that he wanted the album to be the, the slider for the 90s. Indeed, he did. But he was not their first choice to produce the album. Do you know who was? Um, I don't. So they had initially approached Brian Eno and Flood. I was going to say Eno, and then it, like I, I stepped back. Yeah, and we'll come back to it. I mean, there's, there's an obvious Bowie connection, so we, we'll talk about Brett Anderson as very obvious David Bowie affectations in the way he mm-hmm. performs and the way he sings. So there's an obvious connection there, but if you listen to it, so Eno and Flood work with you two very, very famously on Joshua Tree, Actung Baby, and you listen to the sound of some of the tracks on this album, although it wasn't produced by Eno and Flood, so it was scheduling conflicts meant it, it couldn't happen, so they asked Ed Buller to do it. You can see what they were going for. You can see why they were interested in bringing that aesthetic mm-hmm. into their sound. And what I will say is all credit to Ed Buller because he does a more than presentable job of recreating what Eno and Flood had been doing. Yeah, what he what he did, and certainly as I say, the T Rex, the slider, they they aped the recording process to to how Bolin had put stuff together at the time. So every track when they started to put it together. I started with an acoustic guitar, bongos, a tambourine, and Brett Anderson, and they built the songs from that. And it was also a much more collaborative and democratic process as opposed to previously where Butler would compose music for Anderson's lyrics. Brett Anderson himself says coming up was much more of a meritocracy. If something was good enough, it didn't matter what the source was. Yeah. Can I just touch a little bit more on on how... Richard Oakes came to be involved with the band and then his first engagements. Yeah. So a common theme actually in, in the, in these episodes after Bernard Butler had left sort of half jokingly swayed had put an advert in the music press NME, Melody Maker, Q, etc., saying genius guitarist wanted influences swayed. And Richard Oakes, who, as Kev said, was 17 at the time, the first gig he'd ever went to, was Swade in Poole, because he's from Dorset. He was a member of the Swade fan club, and he sent in a cassette of him playing Swade songs. And apparently he, he was such the standout candidate that when Simon Gilbert heard his audition tape, he mistakenly thought it was an early demo from the Swade sessions. That's how good Richard Oakes was. That's how closely he was able to replicate what Bernard Butler had produced with the band. He's 17. He was still in college. I know, it's mad. So he joins the band. His very first engagement with the band was the video shoot for We Are The Pigs from Dogman Star. The next week, he was appearing on Top of the Pops. Then he went on a US tour for three months. And I say he's 17 years old. I think he, no, he's 18. He says by the time he played his first gig with the band, he just turned 18. And like, just wow. Again, as a as a very amateur guitarist myself, the um the jealousy <laughs> that burns within me. <laughs> I've suppressed when I was reading that, but just wow. Well, yeah, like he sends he sent like it's his band, like the band that he really loves. He's part of the fan club. He sends a tape in and he then joins the fucking band. That's a proper mad story. It is a mad story. Yeah, exactly. It is. It's 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 the stuff that fairy tales are, are made of. 
yeah sorry I'll, it's your it's it's your show i'm i'll be quiet now it's it's fine um so ed buller as we said his production was really important on it but he attributes the album's better sounds due to him having minimal involvement in the mixing process so dave baskin uh, mixed the majority of the album and chose to speak so for example chose to speed up the vocals on trash and because he hadn't had a previous involvement with the band, he was credited with bringing a fresh sound, a f- fresh ears, a fresh perspective to, and obviously they were trying to do something different from what they'd done before. And so having that new influence and obviously new new people within the band helped them to, to achieve something different than they'd done before. Interesting. I suppose that goes to show, we always talk about the band and the producer. There's more people involved in the recording of an album than just the producer and, and the band themselves. It takes a team of engineers to do so. And um, yeah. it's something that uh, is worth recognising because we can't, well, we could sit here and list all of the credits on an album, but even fewer people would listen to the show than we already <laughs> Well, we'd, we'd continue talking more than we already do. And let's face it, that we pontificate enough. Can I just, as an aside, listen, I was listening back to the Morning Glory episode recently. I can't believe we didn't take the opportunity to absolutely lay into Paolo Hewitt. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, I forgot all about Paolo Hewitt. <sighs> the Don Jesus. Letts of the Britpop generation. <laughs> At least Don Letts, like was involved with the clash. Like, yeah, okay. Paolo Hewitt was like the biggest hanger on. Oh, God, yeah. And, and that passage he wrote in the sleeve notes of Morning Glory is, oh, God, it's cringingly... Ugh. Sorry, move on. We're not talking about Oasis. That's all I've got to, to speak about in terms of the recording and, and background to it. So should we speak about the album art? I think we should, because there's probably quite a bit for us to talk about in terms of the album art. So we've, ta- we've talked about um, famous creators of of albums and this one whilst it's not necessarily one of his most famed works the design of it was by peter savile of factory records who created some of the most iconic album covers well he did on pleasures didn't he exactly and he also was responsible for the uh the blue monday uh seven uh, oh really i didn't know that yeah that was the original pressing Sorry, I watched Shaun of the Dead recently. <laughs> the original pressing that they lost money on every every sale, and it was the biggest selling twelve inch single. They lo- really, yeah. So like the the design was was so intricate that they it actually cost them more. <laughs> I mean, that's why Factory Records went under. <laughs> no, we've already spoken about that. Sean Ryder's fucking crack habit is why Factory Records went under. But it's not a surprise when decisions like that <laughs> exactly. were made. Biggest selling 12-inch single in his, in like history. And yeah, they lost money on everyone. <laughs> I've got a copy of Blue Monday. It's not original pressing. <laughs> Move on. So yes, Peter Savile, Blue Monday. Unknown pleasures. He designed the album cover. So he designed it in uh, collaboration with Brett Anderson, and it shows three models, Lee, Leah, and Paula. Rod, Jane, and Freddie. (laughs) (laughs) In a composition on a mattress is how I've decided to describe it. I mean, in a threesome on a mattress. (laughs) Yeah, essentially. Apparently, it is inspired by the surrealist works of German artist Paul Wunderlich. I mean, I'm sure he's licking his grace. (laughs) 
<laughs> Funny. <laughs> uh, that was from the Sky Arse documentary I talked about earlier, where Peter Seville says yeah. that himself. So there you go. <laughs> okay. Um, and yes, I, I decided to lower the tone. It's a very striking cover. Um, what you can certainly say about Suede's cover art is that they liked a striking image. So the, the debut album, which is of two men necking, essentially, yeah. Um, again, was a very striking image, and like the colours used on used on this, it's it's very neon, it's very lurid, yeah, it it stands out. So it does. So I I've said something very similar that that neon backdrop completely sets the tone for what you're about to listen to. It gives the backdrop to the album, you know, ten hits as you said, Brett Anderson wanted to make. So it's already in stark contrast, I think, to the art for both of the first two albums particularly Dogman Star, but it has a linearity to Dogman Star because you've got that black and white striped mattress that they're mm-hmm. on to create the bedsit aesthetic, if you like, which calls back to, as I say, the, the cover of Dogman Star, which is a fella lying on a, on a mattress. I think it is a really good way to link what they had done before to what they were trying to do on this album. I think it's a really good cover. And if we're going to compare the two, as much as we said that the cover of Elastica is cool as fuck and really suits what that album is, this is probably a bit more adventurous and is probably the better cover. Yeah, it is. It, it, it is a better cover. Like It's visually more striking and more interesting to look at. Mm. As good as the image of Elastica is and lovely font work, the, this is this is far far more interesting to look at. What I will say is the font work on this is is very slapdash. It's it's very MS Paint, isn't it? And <laughs> <laughs> uh, with that, I have nothing else to say about the artwork. No, neither do I. So, all that's left to say before we start going through the album is, Tim, how did you first come across it? So when it came out, just this easy answer. I was aware of Suede's first two albums. I uh, certainly knew that the singles, Wild Ones, Stay Together, So Young, Animal Nitrate, obviously, but I was never really massively into them. But by the summer of 96, when I heard Trash, you know, I was 15, bang into my, this is my era of musical discovery. And so practically anything that had a guitar in it, I was all over. And this is no exception. So, yeah, when the album came out, I went out and bought it. How about you? Similar to you, that I'd, I'd certainly heard quite a bit of Suede stuff from the from the first album particularly. This album, I, ne- I never actually bought it. There was a girl on my school bus who was banging to Suede, and she absolutely loved uh, Brett Anderson and kept going on about how amazing he was. So she um, she did us a tape of the of this album. So home taping is killing music. <laughs> so that's how I came came across this album is the is that she gave she gave us a copy of it, and that's that's how I listened to it. I mean, I'm not sure the listeners are very interested in this section at all, anyway. But for this Britpop season, it's going to be particularly boring. When did you give this album? When it came out. Yeah. <laughs> it we were alive at the time. <laughs> And the and the target audience. <laughs> Oi, um, yeah. So that's it for for us both. Okay, I'm ready to go through it. Yeah. So let's um, let's start. And we open the album with trash. 
um, which was the first single from the album, reached uh, number three and was their highest charting single in the UK. Also topped the Finnish charts. So as we as we said, like although I'm not going to call the Finns Scandinavians because they very much do not like that, but within that geographical area, they are very popular. Two points. It was their joint highest charting UK single along with Stay Together. It also reached number one in France and number two in Iceland. So this, as, as we said, the Scandinavians were a fan. Uh, you just said the Finnish aren't Scandinavians, so you've gone back on your word, but there you go. No, well, when we were talk, when we talked about um, where it had done well, it went gold in Sweden and Denmark. Norway, actually. But, ah, yeah. Sweden and Norway. So we've now alienated any Nordic listeners, so uh, great stuff. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> Oh, look, I haven't had a chance to lay into the South, so, you know. You're not even drinking tonight. No, I know. <laughs> so in terms of what the what the song was about, so in the Sky Arts interview, Brett Anderson says, I actually wrote Trash about the band Suede. It's a celebration of the band, but by extension, it's a celebration of the fans as well. And it was a kind of song written about us as a gang. It was written about the values we stood for. And even though it sounds like a love song, it was actually about the idea of the identity of the band and what they stood for. I mean, it's a fantastic opening track, this, isn't it? It's a belter. It is a belter. You've got just that, you know, it's not even a drum fill. It's a kick drum and a snare. Bang, you're straight in. Oh, I remember the first time I heard this track. It was in the summer of 96. I'd just been on holiday with my family. We'd got back to the UK literally come off the ferry in Dover. I stuck my personal stereo on, stuck the radio on, because it was the Chris Evans breakfast show, and I heard this. It's like, boom, there you go. So I mentioned Eno, Flood. They didn't end up working on the album, but more than anything else on it, you can hear the influence of their sound on this with the synth part throughout it, which is really simple. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's great. I really, really like Trash. Really good song. It's got a great hook to it. There's a really good solo in the middle of it. Yep. And if you're talking about their manifesto of what they were trying to achieve is that they wanted to do a poppier, more accessible album. This is exactly what they were looking to do. Yep. Because it's got all the classic elements of Suede, but in a much more accessible manner. Yep. And it's a, it's a really good song. It is a really good song. And an obvious choice for the lead single, if they wanted to make that statement that you just talking about, that they wanted to, especially after the loss of such a prominent member of the band, to make that statement, as, oh, no, we're, we're hanging around here. And what you said about Brett Anderson's meaning behind the lyrics, we're still here. We know what you think of us, but fuck yous, because we ain't going anywhere. It's We say this word an awful lot in opening tracks, because it's important for opening tracks to be a statement. This is a statement. Yeah, with, without question. Um, I think it turned a lot of people back onto Suede, who yes. had been alienated by the previous album. Yes. Although I'm a big fan of Dogman Star. I really like it. You are one of the few. I think it's become much like the Holy Bible with the Mannix. I think it's become much more celebrated in the years after its release. Possibly, possibly so. Um, the only other thing I have to say about Trash is, do you know what the working title for the song was? I do not. Pisspot. <laughs> I'm glad they changed it. I'm disappointed. I think they should have kept <laughs> 
Hey. Okay, so then we move on to the second um, song on the album, which was the fifth and final single, Film Star, reached number nine in the UK charts. Can we just say, ten tracks this album, five singles. It's a lot. Half Yeah, half-year um, album. Yeah. It's an interesting choice. Mm, yes. So what do you think? What do you think of this song? I mean, you talked about T Rex. You talked about Slider. Yep, <laughs> it's very T Rex. It's very glam rock. I like it. I like Film Star. I mean, I talked about the Bowie affectations earlier. Yes, very much so here. It's catchy. It's got a catchy guitar. If it's got a catchy chorus line, it's really hooky. It's very poppy. So. Brett wanted to make 10 hits. You're two tracks in. Yeah, they're both different sounding, but they're both hooky. They're both catchy. I, I like Filmstar. It's not as good as Trash, but I like it. How about you? So I'm glad that we listened to this album for this clash because at the time I hated Filmstar. It really bugged me. And it re- like I think his voice really grated on me at the time. And I think it was that sort of Cod Bowie inflection particularly around singing film style like it at the time it really bugged me but listening to it again it's got a really good opening it's got dead sleazy guitars it possibly goes on a little too long but as you say it's a good poppy single and it's got it's got all the good constituent elements to it so i i have turned my opinion on it from back in the day yep there are songs later in the album where my opinion from back in the day hasn't changed this is not one of them. I, I I felt because it was the fifth single, and all five singles from this album reached the reached the top ten. So there was this album was very much saturated in terms of its airplay, in terms of its media presence. Mm-hmm. I grew sick of the album. I grew sick of this song, and like you, listening to it back was refreshing. There are other songs on the album where that was not the case, but yeah, I like Filmstar. Just. Sorry, before we move on, in terms of how the song came to be. So this is the 25th anniversary of the release of Coming Up. So Brett Anderson recently gave an interview to Absolute Radio where he said, I remember waking up one day with this little thing in my head. Film star, proper at the bar. I remember calling Richard and saying, I've got this thing. Can I come round to your flat? I woke him up and I sat him down. I started singing it. He sat there and he threaded this guitar thing and we wrote the whole song. Whole song came together incredibly quickly. That's quite unusual. Now, well, as we've discussed many, many times, exactly, is that when it's a hit, it it doesn't take very long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we move on to the fourth single released from the album, which reached number nine, which is "Lazy." Yeah. So for me, it's a bit nothing. It's not a bad song. It just it's not particularly memorable and. This is where his voice, like the way he sings Lazy properly grates on me, like really, really bugged me. It's got a good solo in it, though. So it, it's not awful, but it did remind me of the things I didn't like about Swade. I can see where you're coming from. I like Lazy. This is another one, as you said, that listening back to the album now, that yeah, I like this. I, I was harsh on it at the time. I Yeah, there, there are very, very Bowie affectations. But there's stuff 
in, you know, if you if you can penetrate through that, there's stuff to really admire in it. There's, you know, you got the chorus is catchy as hell, regardless of how he's singing it. It's catchy. It just gets in your head. It's more glam rock. You know, T Rex coming to the fore. It, it's poppy, catchy. The bass line's great all the way through it. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what else to say. It's um, no, it's it's fair enough. Like apparently, it, it, uh, sorry. Uh, apparently, this was originally written before they recorded the first album, but Brett had held it back because he didn't think it fitted with the sound of either the first two albums. And then when it, and then when it came to no, let's do something which is deliberately more poppy. Now's the time to bring out Lazy, and that's uh, a good choice for me. I I don't mind it. Yeah, I, I can understand why why he's done that. As I say, like I don't think it's a bad song. It's just there are elements about it that grated a little bit on me. I think it's lyrically quite clever as well. It's in the similar vein to a lot of the tracks we talked about on Great Escape. It seems to be a criticism or critique of suburbanites. Here they come, gone seven a.m., getting satellite and sky, getting cable, bills and bends, and their mums and their friends who just really, really want to be loved. But you and me, all we want to be is lazy. So it's in that similar vein to say Great Escape, but not with a nod and a wink to it. It's look at these people, but we're different, aren't we? We've got something else, something more. And um, you, so you've got that poppiness, that catchiness, but if you want to penetrate beneath that, there's something more. And that's one of the reasons I like it. Okay, fair, fair enough. So we move on to the next song on the album, which is By the Sea. And it's, we use this phrase quite a lot, it's a tempo change. And it's really, it's a really simple, pretty song. It's a beautiful song. Keyboards are ironically key to this song. And Osman's bass as well is really effective and really important to it. Yes. I really I really like this song. I, I really enjoy it. So do I. So it's another one that was written around the time of, of Suede, but never recorded and, and something that Brett held back. I've said it's the most old Suede song on the album. This wouldn't be out of place on Dogman Star. I really like that piano riff that kicks it off. And the guitar part is really Bernard Butler. And I don't mean that as a criticism of Richard Oakes. I mean it as a compliment, actually. They seem to have set out to record something that links back to their previous works, and he's able to recreate it. That's a real testament to his talent. It seems to be an ode to suicide. He can walk out anytime. He Anytime he wants to walk out, that's fine. He can walk out anytime across the sand into the sea, into the brine. So it's it's bleak lyrically. So when you've had three really catchy, really poppy, really up-tempo, obvious singles, you then, as you said, tempo shift into something much more redolent of what they've done before. It's a brave choice, but I really like By the Sea. Yeah, it, I suppose that this is the, the one nodding back to your old fans, mm-hmm. really that you've brought in possibly a new crowd with your poppier sound from the first three. And this is a nod and a wink to to the people who were there from the start, really. Yeah, yeah, good way of putting it. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so we then move on to She. What do you think? I like She. Everything about it, actually. It, again, it's very glam to start with. Uh, it, the, it, 
the guitar riff sounds quite similar to film style, actually, the descending nature through the mm-hmm. chord progression. So there's a definite link there. It's a real biting critique of the time of what has become known as heroin chic. You know, she walking like a killer. She another night, another pillow. It's it, aside from that remarkable uh, rhyming dexterity, let's say. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's very biting. It's very sarcastic. Yeah, I like it. I mean, can we like before before I sort of start saying what I think and that? Can we just say how mad that that was a thing? Heroin chic. Yeah. Yeah. That people wanted to look like smack addicts. Like, what was that about? It's absolutely fucking wild. So I'm reading a book at the moment. Um, well, in fact, I quoted it. Daniel Rich, Daniel Rachel's book about Cool Britannia. And there's a whole chapter in that about the art scene and the, the fashion scene at the time. And God, the pretension and the complete lack of self-awareness that comes with stylists, photographers, and, and anyone involved in that scene at the time. It's like, come on, because they talk about this as if it was in, <sighs> integral to the it's awful, awful people, awful. Well, I know that like train spotting initially got tagged with the with the thing about heroin chic. It's like anyone who's ever watched that film is that there is nothing glamorous about heroin depicted in that film. And if you think there is glamour in it, then you've completely fucking missed the point of the film. Well, exactly. And even then, the Kate Moss was it the Calvin Klein shoot? That was years before Train Spotting, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Extremely distasteful. And um, I think it speaks to a lot of what came out. No, a lot of what happened in the 90s that was... Because we're not even... We, do you know what? When we we were talking about Elastica last week, we didn't even get on to the whole concept of Ladettes and Loaded Magazine and this whole thing that to become accepted as cool but also sexy women had to suddenly pretend to be like adolescent or young adult men what the fuck was that about it's like for for as much as we hate praise on the on what came out musically and culturally for the 90s there was a lot of fucking just really unpleasant and yeah just not not very nice stuff you know what i mean yeah like the in terms of the Ladette thing, I think it's difficult for us to sort of comment comment on it as two as two males who grew up during that time. Yeah, I think it's pro- it would be more effective because that seems like a very class based thing to me. Anyway, the young women who weren't acting necessarily in the way that may be expected or conforming to to traditional roles were tagged with this ladette thing but it was done in a weird weird kind of way that and yeah not even going into the whole loaded cult like culture shift which which created a very toxic masculinity yeah which which was still sort of is still sort of impacted now because the people the people who grew up with that being deemed as acceptable are the ones who are now the tastemakers of television and media in, in culture, the, the people who are our age were influenced by this by this culture. Yeah, absolutely. We've gone well off piste here. Sorry, guys. Yeah. But it's, it is, I think it's for once it's worth, 
it's worth sticking with this and worth calling it out because it's it's the unpleasant side of all this great mm-hmm. uplifting positive optimistic culture that that we grew up in is that there was also a a seedy overt sexualization of class as you said well just to, just to bring to bring it to to a close before before I actually say what my opinion is on she, uh, go, going back to what we were actually talking about, is it that I suppose what we're talking about is what Jarvis Cocker called out on yeah. Common People. Yes, is people who were 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 rich and were were tourists in poverty for a for a bit of a laugh for yes. trying to drop their H's in order to fit in and that kind of thing. Absolutely, perfectly put. And I think with that, what do you think about she? So I don't like it. <laughs> okay, I do. Um, I can't really put my finger on why. I don't really like Brett Anderson's voice in it. And I don't think that the orchestration adds anything to the song. See, now that's one of the things I like about it. And I'm glad you've let... Sorry, I'm, sorry, I'm glad you've let me interrupt you now. Because I'm going to do it. <laughs> I think the orchestra, the string section at the end adds a real John Barry feel to this song that I like. It doesn't do anything that Film Star and Lazy haven't already done on the album, but I think it does it better than both those tracks. Mm, okay. And for that reason, I'm surprised it wasn't chosen as a single above those two. I like She. I think it's got something to say. And I'm a fan. Fair, fair enough. I d- just didn't get it. Didn't get it. Okay, fair enough. So we eventually move on to um, Beautiful Ones. The second single off the album reached number eight in the UK, number one in Iceland. It was originally called Dead Leg, as Matt Osman had threatened to give Brett Anderson a dead leg if he failed to write a top 10 single. And it's very indicative of the move to, to a much more pop sound. And, it, you know, it is a really good pop song. It's got a good hook to it. It, and it had a, a really, really effective video as well. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the video for it is is one of the better ones of the 90s, I'd say. Yes, I agree. So you had, they were very much taking off the commercialization of the 90s. So mm-hmm. there was a send-up of the Nike logo and the Just Done It. There was obviously the, you know, directly calling out Bostic when it comes to sniffing glue. Yeah. So you said it was. So yes, the working title was Dead Leg, but even after that, it had a different title. So it was. It was also called The Beautiful Scum. It was another one that Brett Anderson basically said he he was writing uh, about the band and their fans, much like Trash, and he he wanted to sing Here They Come, The Beautiful Scum, but he thought that was a little too on the nose, and he's right. It was very much too on the nose. So changed it to the to the beautiful ones. So this is one that had very heavy rotation on the radio on MTV, mm-hmm. and I became a little bit sick of. But it's a great song. That guitar riff is fucking brilliant. Yeah, the melodies throughout are catchy as hell. And as we said around trash, around lazy, there's some depth to the lyrics if you want to penetrate that Mm -hmm. it's a real sneering critique of 90s hedonistic club culture cracked up stacked up 22 psycho for sex and glue lost it to bostic air as i mentioned earlier shaved heads raved heads on the pill 
E. Got too much time to kill. Get into bands and gangs. Oh, here they come, the beautiful ones. I am a big, big fan of beautiful ones. Yeah, as as you say, it was one that had heavy rotation and it did start to to bug you at the time. But listening to it back now, it's a cracking song. Mm-hmm. It's got a great opening, and you know it's it's even got it's even got like, it finishes with like a little uh, chant, a little la la. You know, <laughs> yeah, which, exactly. which, which, you know, you've thrown, you've thrown a bit of everything at it. Well, it, it, that's your nod to the indie disco just before closing time. Yeah. Arms around your mates. Let's have it. So, you know, you said right at the start, Brett Anderson set out to make 10 hits. For me, I know you don't agree, but for me, we are 60% of the way through. Mission accomplished so far for me. Yeah, yeah, he has certainly, like, whilst I don't necessarily like all the songs on it, is that he certainly created pop songs that have, they have hooks to them. They they may not necessarily work for me, but they they are working to the brief at this point. Yep. Okay, so we then move on to the next song, which is Star Crazy. Oh, dear. (laughs) Not a fan. Not at all. Oh, I'm sorry. This is a pale imitation of what we've already heard. So I said that that she does what film star and lazy had done, but a bit better. This this just offers me nothing more than those have done, but does it far worse? This is the one for me where the Bowie affectations really start to grate. Why does he start screaming violence in the middle? I, I hate this song. Don't like it at all. <laughs> so... For me, I didn't. I didn't particularly take against it as as much as you. There's nothing particularly wrong with it from my perspective. It just never grabbed me. Never really. It's fine. It's very album filler. It is very album filler. Do you see what I mean about it? It's too similar to too many other tracks on the album. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. That there's nothing particularly wrong with the song in itself, but it doesn't stand out next to everything else because. Mm. Yeah, it, it's too similar. Yeah, I have nothing else to say about it. No, so let's move on. Picnic by the Motorway. And I, I really like it. I like the guitars on it. I think there's a good layering to the song. And I think Anderson's voice works really well on it. And he, he is someone who's, whose voice, as we discussed earlier, that can grate on me. I, I, did, I did like it. Okay, so this is a hard disagree. Okay. I don't like this song at all. It's boring. So you could compare it to Dogman Star tonally. But if you want to listen to this alongside, let's take Daddy Speeding as an example. It's a world away from the edginess and the sinisterness and the darkness of Daddy Speeding. It's it's a pale facsimile of what's on Dogman Star. So Ed Buller had this song absolutely nailed. According to a 2010 article on The Quietus in an interview with Brett Anderson... Brett said that he had said to to Ed Buller, if it's a single, it'll be called Lovely Day. If it's not a single, I'll think of something clever. Well, it's not called Lovely Day, and I think that says everything. No, it bores me, this song. I don't like it at all. Okay, fair enough. We are seeing some some debate and some... We are. As as I say, I really like Dogman Star. I think it's a really good album. I I like the darkness to it. I like the... You could call it self-indulgence, yeah but it's far more musically interesting than 
painted by the motorway. Any track on, yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, as I said, a pale facsimile for me. Okay, so we shall move on to the chemistry between us. <laughs> You're a big fan, man. I fucking hate this song, sorry. I really apologise. I'm completely hogging the microphone here, Kev, I'm sorry. I have a lot to say about this song. None of it's positive. I hate it. So I don't feel as strongly against it as you do. I I think it goes on too long. Seven minutes and four seconds. There are some good elements to it. So the orchestration and the development of the guitars works for a bit, but yeah, it's far too long and it ta- takes an age to get started as well. Yeah, I, I'm not against it, but it's not great. So in terms of what it's about... I'll I'll just quote Brett Anderson. This song is about the emptiness of it all. It's like one day you wake up in this haze, lying next to some person you don't even recognise, in some altered state, not being able to remember the past year. And you think, what's going on? I mean, God, like lyrically, class A, class B, is that the only chemistry between us? Even when I was 15, I thought that was cringingly on the nose. We've said before about sixth form lyrics. That's a sixth form lyric. I don't even think it's sixth form. Fucking hell. So it doesn't go anywhere. I like long songs. We've established this already. But long songs that have... Okay, so this is perhaps an unfair comparison to, to Brett Anderson and Suede. But take Day in the Life, a song of a similar length, but a song that develops in acts and in movements into different things. This is just the same thing, that annoying guitar riff, which is completely grating with the subject of the song, by the way, over and over and over again. By the third chorus, I've had enough, and I check the time, and I'm not even halfway through the song. I get angry about this song. As you can probably tell, I'm very animated. I detest it. Perhaps as much as any song we have ever covered on Album Clash. So... I think for me, the most damning part about it is that I'm not that arsed about it. The it doesn't like at least whilst you you hate it, at least it has um, engendered yeah, an emotional response. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like you have responded to the arse. For me, it's like, yeah, it it hangs around far too long. So. Yeah, let's let's move on because it's it's not it's not a great piece of work. No. Um so we finished the album with Saturday Night, the third single, reached number six in the UK, number one in Iceland. The Icelandics fucking loved Suede at this time, didn't they? Absolutely fucking buzzed off them. <laughs> so obviously it was a well played song at the time. And I never really liked the song. So what I will say is that I'm maybe a little softer towards it now than I was back then. I don't particularly like the song, but I don't dislike it as much as I used to. It's in a really odd place on the album. Like, considering where you've started and how you've started the album, uh-huh. the it's a very downbeat song to, to finish on. It is. Yeah, it's, it, it seems really odd, oddly placed. So I would like to read a a snippet from the retrospective war for the 15th anniversary of the album on the BBC. Jamie Gill in 2011 said the blandly anthemic Saturday night paved the way for their later 
FM fluff. Yep. <laughs> wow, that's um, that is damning. It's fucking spot on, though, isn't it? It's yeah. It as you say, the the second half of this album, it does career down downhill. I think it's perhaps the starkest drop off we've had. And I know straight out of Compton, you weren't a fan of the second half of that album mm-hmm. at all. But the first six tracks on this album, I like all of them. Some more than others, fair enough. But the last four, I don't like any of them. I if I viscerally dislike two or three of them. <laughs> so the song is, is is a lament for people who have little to live for except for the weekend, you know, and, and want to go out to do whatever makes her happy on a Saturday night. I have issue with some of the lyrics that Brett uses to talk about what he appears to want to do on a Saturday night. Bearing in mind, this is whatever makes her happy on a Saturday night. We'll go to freak shows and peep shows. We'll go to discos, casinos. I mean, fuck's sake, Brett, you're supposed to be taking her out for a night on the town. What to a fucking seedy stag doing Blackpool? <laughs> it's just... I mean... This has got Night Out in Tallinn written all over it. <laughs> exactly. It's just... Anyway. Um, all I want to... So I don't like this at all. It's boring. It's a weird way to end the album. I didn't like it then. I don't like it now. The only other thing I want to say about it is the girl in the video. If you remember the video, do you know mm-hmm. who that was? No, I don't. Keely Hawes. Oh, right. Okay. So Keely Hawes of uh, Ashes to Ashes fame was in the video to Saturday Night. Um, Not a fan. No, neither for me. And that ends the album. So in terms of obviously its legacy, it was their most commercially successful album and reinvigorated their career after the, as we said, the failure of Dogman Star. Yeah. So, no, as I said, all five of the singles from this album reached the top ten in the UK and and no band had ever or has ever since achieved that. So, you know, that's remarkable. But it broke them. And I mean, it broke them Mm -hmm. commercially in a good way, but, you know, in a bad way as well. So to promote the album, they basically toured the world for 18 months and it broke them completely, mentally, physically. I mean, obviously, they had to do a massive tour of Scandinavia, um, <laughs> playing all the big cities in Iceland. Do you know any other cities than Reykjavik in Iceland? Keflavik. And the only reason oh, I can fuck think... off. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, champ manager. <laughs> Packing out the halls of Bergen and... Um... Rum so. Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> um, so, so there's there's loads on legacy. It because it, it did it, yes, it, it it was their commercial and critical high point, but as we talked about with Elastica last week, it had a massive impact on the band longer term. As I said, they they basically toured the world for 18 months. Brett Anderson saying, looking back on that, it wasn't good for us. It kind of broke us in lots of ways. Richard Oakes said towards the end of 97, towards the end of that tour, that's when things started to take a downward turn. So as we alluded to last week and earlier on, Brett Anderson became addicted to heroin and, and to crack. 
he said in the documentary with Sky Art that deep down I knew I was in real trouble, but I justified my addiction by seeing it as part of some rock and roll mythology. Richard Oakes again, he said at the end of the Coming Up tour, we started writing head music. I didn't like going to Brett's house because there were these nefarious people there and they were all part of a drug scene that Brett was involved in. They were all a bit sinister. So that removed a key part of the personal connection you need for songwriting. And I suppose what Richard Oakes is talking about there was replicated in a number of bands at that time. It was very much a fin de siècle. It was like, the and which is kind of, I'm going to reference Pulp again, sort of that this is hardcore, end of the party kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And obviously you saw that with, what happened with Oasis, you saw that, obviously, as we talked about with Elastica, that they descended into, into that. And there was a number of number of bands who disappeared, which allowed Travis to, to have a major spot of Glastonbury in 2000 because they'd all descended into this kind of drug-fueled pit, really. And this is the thing, it's a really, really interesting point you make there because so many of those bands were in inverted commas, established. And by established, I mean, they weren't your, your long pigs. They weren't your casts who'd released one album and had success with that and then failed to follow that up with anything as good. You know, Suede coming up with their third album. Pulp had been around for fucking years. They had these high points commercially, critically. And that success took its toll. And... It seems quite perverse to me that in the aftermath of that, that there were these bands, Travis, Stereophonics, go later on, Keen, Coldplay, that just filled the void with with just inoffensive blandness. I don't know, I've lost my train of thought a little bit there, but it's just it's it's interesting to me that, that a lot of the bands that that seem to struggle most with the addictive side of rock and roll and and fall furthest from their commercial and critical high point weren't bands that had had instant success. They were bands that had been there for a while. I, I mm-hmm. don't know. You know. Does that make any sense? No, no, I understand what you're saying is that they'd had sustained success, which meant that the party could go on for longer. But when it ended, it ended hard. Yeah, indeed. Uh, okay, okay. So um, <laughs> back to the disintegration of Suede. <laughs> Neil Codling contracted glandular fever on the part of that world tour. So he basically spent the majority of 1998 confined to his bed. He had to record his parts for head music remotely and send them in on tape. So that's another part of that band dynamic that had reinvigorated them for coming up that just disappeared. So you've got Brett's absenteeism, Neil Codling's enforced absence, Richard O's basically being exhausted himself, and still, what was he, 20, 19, 20 at this time? So he's a young fella. The, the sessions for the recording of head music were much more similar to what was happening on Dogman Star than anything else. They had decided to break with Ed Buller, so they went with Steve Osborne, who we talked about when we went through Pills, Thrills and Belly Aches the other week. He produced head music, and it didn't work, basically. He'd had a brief to record a non-guitar-based album, because obviously the the band saw that in the aftermath of Be Here Now, (laughs) you know, that 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 era had finished, and they needed to to move at the times. But 
it it didn't work. And so they released Head Music in 1999, and it was bad. It was a bad album. I don't know if you've heard it. You'll be familiar with the singles, I'm sure. It was bad. Yeah, I have heard it, and (laughs) I can't really add anything to it that it didn't work as as an album. So they went on. Brett managed to recover from his drug addiction, which is the most important thing. Let's be, let's be honest, you know, let's get away from music. That's in 2002, they released a new morning, which is a, a, an obvious nod to that, that recovery. And yet somehow it was worse than head music. And it is. And, and even Brett Anderson, he says he, he doesn't disown head music. He does disown a new morning as an album. That's how bad it is. And I I have never heard it because I knew that it was an absolute train wreck. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, in 2003, Brett Anderson decided to call it a day. Their, their final gig was uh, on the 13th of December 2003 at the Astoria in London. But at that gig, at the end of that gig, Brett announced, I just want you to know there will be another Suede record, but not yet. And so true to the word, they reformed. So they... Uh, they were asked to play a gig for the Teenage Cancer Trust in 2010. They did so. They had such a good time doing that. They decided, no, let's let's stick together. And this was the this was the coming up lineup as well. So Neil Codling was back, Richard Oates. So they released Blood Sports in 2013. They released uh, Night Thoughts in 2016, and then the Blue Hour in 2018. All of which are okay. They're fine. And um, they're about to embark on a UK tour to mark the 25th anniversary of coming up. So Suede, very much alive and kicking, having gone through some quite difficult times. Yeah, nothing really more to add to that. Sorry, I've completely taken over and uh, have basically led this. But um, there you go, that's me. I like to talk. Have you got any reviews? Yes. So the reviews were generally positive. So James Dellingpole in The Telegraph says, coming up is a defiant reminder of what made Suede special. If Dogman Star was Diamond Dogs, this is Suede's Ziggy Stardust. Extravagant, steeped in glam and unashamedly poppy. Uh, I, I said, well, not the, not, not the last time I'm going to disagree with Dellingpole. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I, dis, I disagree with that, but there we go. <laughs> Roy Wilkinson in Select uh, described it as a wondrous pop album, simultaneously immediate and full of scope, a lovely, charming mix of absolute beauty and a thrillingly awkward. Andy Gill in The Independent was very much not on board with the positive. (laughs) And in his incredibly critical review, he said two albums and one guitarist later, they sound utterly mined out. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Um, what's he got to say? Nothing at all about this album. I suppose it didn't. It didn't really hit America, did it? No, so. it didn't. So, Nobby McGee, our good friend, Mister Chris Gow, I cannot find a single quote or even review uh, rating from him on coming up. But I, I don't want to let you down, guys. So I've got something from him. You know, because um, <laughs> wouldn't be the same without him. All right. So he's, he rated Dogman Star a dud and of Suede, their debut album, he said that Suede's collective gender fuck projects a joyful defiance 
so rock and roll it obliterates all niggles about literal truth. If you think their victories over depression have nothing to do with you, be grateful you can make do with a report from the front. Excellent. So once again, he appears to be making light of mental health issues. And yet again, yet again, I have no idea what he thinks of the fucking album. No, exactly. This song's good. This song's shit. Listen, guys, I know we go on and on and on at length. Okay, fine. And most of the shows we record are longer than the albums we review. Fine. Okay, so I am very self-aware on this. But at least we fucking talk about what we think about the fucking music. Jesus Christ. (sighs) And following from that rant, we now go into... I'm not going to do that yet. I, I am well aware that we are basically victimizing a 79-year-old man. I'm all right with that, though, because he's a balance. <laughs> I'm glad you said that, because I'm not going to offer any further comment on it. <laughs> <laughs> so from that, we now move uh, move into... So, Tim, what's your best song, worst song? Okay, okay. I'm going to do my worst song first, and it's Chemistry Between Us. I don't think that'll be any surprise... I have a visceral dislike of that song because it appears to be trying to bridge a gap between eras of suede and it fails in all uh, attempts to do that. It's boring. If you want to record a seven minute epic song, why isn't that by the sea? Because that's the one that deserves to be the epic song on this album. Not this shit. I hate it. Okay. Best song? Uh, Trash. Nothing else on this album comes anywhere near it. It's joyful, it's anthemic, it's brilliant. Trash is the best song on this album by a fucking mile. How about you? Okay, so for me, the worst song on the album, it's a flip up. So you've already mentioned the chemistry between us, and I think I, I agree with a lot of what you got to say about it. But Saturday night, um, <laughs> yeah. I don't like the song. I didn't like it originally. It's in the wrong place on the album. Yeah, it's, don't get it. So that's my worst song. Best song, the best song is Trash. Um, but I will give an honourable mention, uh, certainly to Beautiful Ones and By the Sea. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Okay, so. Scoring then, yeah? Yeah, I suppose we've, we've got to score these then. So this is your choice. So I go first on Elastica, last on Suede. Yes. Off you go. So as as I said, when we went through Elastica, the... It's a, it's an album that I hadn't listened to for a long time, and I regret that. It's right up my alley. The songs have just such a great energy to them. They're really well performed. Like all the constituent elements of the band are absolutely on fire. There's very little to criticize on the album. There's a couple of songs that, you know, we weren't we weren't too massively keen on. But largely, it's really good, and it works really well as an album as well. And I really enjoyed listening to it. Again, it's an album that doesn't hang around too long. It, you, you get through 15 songs like that, and it's a really good piece of work. So I'm going 8 out of 10. Okay. So I didn't really conceal my thoughts about this album when we went through it last week. As you said, 15 songs, less than 40 minutes. This was one of my favourite albums in my teenage years. As I said last week, it was one of the things that that got me into this scene. 
it made me feel that this was my time. That's, you know, that's that's how I have to describe it. This is my time. This is my music. This is speaking to me. It's fun. It's playful. It's joyous. It's punky. I think that this album has been criminally overlooked in retrospectives of the 90s. So, yeah, I'm going to go 8 out of 10 as well. I, I really, really love Elastica. I think it's a crying shame that the second album was such a letdown. And as Justin Frischman said, and as we said last week, if they'd left it as a one-album project, I think it would be held up as a cultural milestone and it deserves to be held up as such. Eight out of ten for me on Elastica. Yeah, there we go. So that gets 16. Okay, so where does Suede come? All right, this is to coin a footballing cliche, very much an album of two, well, almost two halves. Six tracks are really, really good. Two of them are classics of the era, but there's four at the end. And, you know, the fact that they have the last four tracks on the album that, that to me are mediocre at best. And two of them I have a visceral dislike for. And so that leaves a very, very sour taste in my mouth. I have to say, it, coming back to the album after such a long time, I wanted to speak more highly of it because its high points deserve that. Trash, beautiful ones. Even By the Sea, as we said, it's a great song. But those last four tracks are just bad. If this was Dogman Star that we were going through, it'd be a different story. I really, really like Dogman Star. It's, to me, their best album. I think it's a, a great piece of work. This could have been, but it isn't. And I'm going to go quite mathematical about it. There's six tracks I really like. There's four tracks I really don't like. So I'm going to give it six out of ten. Simple as that. How about you? Um. So for me... It has some great high points, and you've you've already called them out. Trash, beautiful ones by the sea. They're they're, they're phenomenal pieces of work. They're, they're they're great songs. But as you have rightly called out as well, is there are some pits. There are some low points on this album, and it it does like whilst I'm not not as against Picnic by the Motorway as as you, the the second half of the album does drop significantly in quality and the album ends with a song that i don't like and even if i had a bit more favor towards it it's a really downbeat way to end an album Mm -hmm. when you've started with such a high so i think you've i think you've scored it absolutely absolutely rightly that it is a six out of ten album and it could have been so much better yeah and should have been thank you should have been yes exactly so we are we are in syncopation here. Is that no? Uh, simpatico. Simpatico. That's the one. <laughs> Sorry. We are simpatico. Yep. Eight out of tens, six out of tens. So, as a clear winner here, and it's Elastica. Yeah. Really happy about that. Yes. As you said, coming up should have been a better album. And they, they, they got 60% of the way, the way there and then, and then lost it. Um, but yeah, there you go. So 12 out of 10, that's one of our lowest scoring albums. It is, yeah. Still not as bad as being here now. <laughs> Still the Nadir. <laughs> Great stuff. I mean, I'm really happy about that. I don't think it's going to come as any surprise that um, I'm delighted Elastica's won. And genuinely, I'm really, really, really pleased that you picked it. 
because again, we talked about this a bit last week, pulling behind the curtain. This is this is something that we've talked about a lot privately. I you have defended the album for a long time, yeah, and I, I have. yeah, and I was a lot more critical of it. Yeah, yeah. So good stuff. Okay, should I take us through what we're going to do next? I think you should. Yeah. All right. So we're going to bring to an end our Britpop season. And something we talked about a couple of times throughout these last few clashes is that within this banner of Britpop, there were a few bands caught up in it that didn't necessarily, certainly didn't originate from that time and and you wouldn't necessarily consider as Britpop acts. Although those bands certainly didn't shy away from it when it came to uh, capitalising on it. And I want to talk about two of those bands on our next clash. And so, next week, I am going to take us through Manic Street Preachers' Everything Must Go from 1996. And Kevin, two weeks, I would like you to talk us through the Charlatans' 1997 album, Telling Stories. Oh, interesting. So there are a few things that connect these two albums, aside from the obvious Britpop connections, but we'll have to wait till next week to talk about those. But for now, your homework is for next week, Manic Street Preachers, Everything Must Go. And for two weeks' time, The Charlatans Telling Stories from 1997. That is our next clash and the last clash in our Britpop season. Okay, so all that's left to do is for me to lead us out with, well, with my introduction to our various social media accounts. And again, I'm going to take us down a somber, somber route. Last time we talked about um, the great Lee Scratch Perry, who who died since our last recording. And in the same period, we have also lost the absolutely phenomenal drummer, uh, Charlie Watts. Mm. Was an amazing drummer. Check out loads of the Stone stuff for more detail, and yeah, you may see you may see some of the great tributes to to him on Twitter. Not necessarily on the at Clash album because yet again, the person who controls the account forgot to do it. I mean, you did have your excuses, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, if you like quality curated content, you can uh, check out our Instagram Clash album, or if you're resolutely old school, you can go to albumclash at gmail.com and send us an email or sign him up to some kind of weird weird fetish site which still hasn't happened disappointingly or send me dick pics <laughs> you know dick pics are a thing on the internet send me dick pics i'm not going to say that i'm going to like them all you know you might have a small dick i might not like <laughs> or or one with a kink in it a la bill clinton <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> yeah, all that stuff. I mean, not the dick pic stuff so much, but yes, please get involved. Uh, leave a review. Leave us a rating. Tell us what you want us to go for an album clash. Honestly, guys, you know, if there's two albums that you think are absolutely shouting out to be compared against each other, let us know if there's a if there's a theme. You know, we, we want to get into this concept of seasons, of themes. If there's a theme you want us to go through, let us know what it is. If there's something that you've got stuck in your head, let us know. You know, we'll we'll add it to the playlist and all that. But honestly, it means a lot to us that you're still listening. And um, we hope you're enjoying the show or you just like shouting down your speakers at these two 
British pricks that are just talking shite. Fair enough. If that's what you're into, fine. No worries. Um, but other than that, we shall see you next week. What? Just to remind you of what your homework is, for next week, you need to listen to Manic Street Preachers' Everything Must Go from 1996. And for a fortnight's time, Kev? It's the charlatans telling stories. Boom. Okay. Uh, until then, I have been, as always, Tim. And I continue to be Kev. And we'll see you next time. Take care, guys. Ta-da. Ta-da. Ta-da.